Hey guys, it's me, Javier. I've been waiting to make this announcement for a very long time. It seems like over a year now, but the time has finally come. I am going to be part of a Netflix documentary series called Don't Pick Up the Phone. This documentary is based on one of the stories that I did a while back on my prank series. You may recall the story of the McDonald's hoax prank. Now, if you don't remember, or it's been a long time since you've listened to those episodes, I've combined part one and part two in this one mega episode to refresh your memory so that when Do Not Pick Up the Phone comes out on Netflix, you're ready to go. Now, I have not watched the documentary yet, but I've been told that I'm in part three. And remember, the new season of Pretend, The Stalker, comes out January, and my plan is to release them all at once on my brand new Apple Podcast subscription called Pretend Plus and on Patreon. So that means you could binge all 10 episodes all at once. Anyway, enough of that. Let's listen to part one and part two of the prank series. And by the way, part two has one of the strangest endings of any Pretend episode ever. It still creeps me out, even to this day, to listen to it. So stick around to the end. All right, without further ado, here's Prank 1 and Prank 2. And don't miss Don't Pick Up the Phone on Netflix, debuting December 14th. It was February 2nd, 2003, at approximately 8 p.m., The fries were sitting under the heat lamps at the McDonald's in Hinesville, Georgia. It was after the dinner rush, so things were just starting to die down. A call comes into the restaurant. Tracy, the shift manager, wipes down her oily hands on the side of her uniform and picks up the phone. The man on the other end of the line says that his name is Gary Stanberry the director of operations for GWD. GWD is the franchise owner of the McDonald's in Hinesville, Georgia. Gary, the man on the phone, tells Tracy that a customer just called and reported money missing from her purse. The customer says that she accidentally left her purse at the restaurant earlier that day, and when she came back, the money was gone. The caller then tells Tracy Who's working there tonight? Tracy gives him every name of every employee. He then asks her to describe the women. And so she did. One by one, she gives the caller a description of each female employee. Gary, the caller, tells Tracy that he was in communication with the police. And he tells her that one of the employees who he had just described was involved in some really serious stuff. He says her name is Vanessa. The caller then explains that Vanessa might have some drugs on her, but not to worry because the police were on their way. In fact, there should be an undercover cop in the restaurant right now. He asked Tracy to walk into the lobby and check to see if the undercover cop had arrived. She says no one was there. The caller then tells her not to worry that the cops will be there soon.
Meanwhile, the caller tells Tracy that she needs to gain control of this situation. He gave Tracy two choices. She can either perform the search for the drugs herself or police can do it for her when they arrive. Gary suggested Tracy search her before the cops get there. Tracy calls Vanessa over and tells her to go into the ladies' room. Tracy explains to Vanessa that she's on the phone with the franchise owner and the police and that she is in serious trouble. The police suspect that she's carrying drugs. Tracy tells Vanessa, either you let me search you now or you let the police do it. Vanessa walks into the stall and begins to remove her shirt, then her pants. She hands her clothes to Tracy over the stall. The caller then instructs Tracy to take her clothes and put it in a garbage bag. Vanessa is naked and asks for her clothes back, but Tracy tells her that she can't give it back to her until the police arrive because her clothes are now evidence. Vanessa stays in the stall naked and crying. The caller then asks Tracy to tell him the name of the oldest employee who worked at the restaurant. She says his name was Sam. Sam is a 55-year-old maintenance man, but he's not even here right now. The caller demands her to get Sam to the restaurant right away. It takes about 10 minutes for Sam to get to the restaurant, and when Sam arrives, the caller requests to speak with him. Gary the caller explains the situation with Vanessa and the drugs. He instructs Sam to walk into the women's restroom where Vanessa was standing there naked and then he asked Tracy, the manager, to leave. The caller then tells Sam that the police wanted to speak with him. So the caller hands the phone to someone else, another man, who says he's with the police. Sam offers Vanessa his coat, but the caller on the phone says not to do that. The caller then asks Sam to perform a physical search for the drugs, and he says that if she doesn't comply, she will be arrested. Finally, the caller instructs Sam to perform a body cavity search on Vanessa. The police never came, and after a while, Sam and Vanessa realized that something was really, really wrong with this situation. They ended up calling the real police and realized that this was all a hoax. Today we're going to talk about prank calls that take it way too far. In fact, these calls are plain sadistic and cruel. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. I bet you're listening to the story of Vanessa, Tracy, and Sam and are shaking your head in disbelief. How in the world did they fall for that? 
Police wouldn't make you do that. Plus, Sam was able to drive from his house and get to the McDonald's before the police, and he still had time to violate her. It's a small town. If this were true, shouldn't the police have arrived within a few minutes? Also, isn't there a policy for this? At no point did anyone say, I have no right to do this. But I bet you're telling yourself, this would never happen to me. I would never fall for this scam. And I bet you're wrong. In fact, I'll prove it. This same exact thing could happen to any one of us. But we'll get to that in a minute. It all started out with just one incident. But then, these calls kept happening again and again. The Courier-Journal, a newspaper out of Louisville, Kentucky, reports that between 1992 to 2004, fast food restaurants and grocery stores across the country kept getting similar calls to the one Tracy received that night at the McDonald's restaurant in Georgia. Here are just a few incidents worth mentioning. In 1999, a North Dakota Burger King manager slapped a 17-year-old employee on the butt because he believed that he was talking to police. That manager spent 30 days in jail. In 2000, a prank caller instructed a McDonald's employee to undress in front of a customer who police suspected was a sex offender. Now why would police ask her to undress in front of a customer? Well, because the cops wanted to use her as bait. The plan was simple. Once the employees got naked, the sex predator couldn't resist the temptation to molest her right then and there. The phony police officer on the phone promised that as soon as the predator made his move, the undercover officers would rush in and arrest him. And as ridiculous as this plan sounds, the employee complied with every demand. Two years later, an 18-year-old girl in Iowa was coerced to jog naked around a McDonald's restaurant and pose in compromising positions. Then in 2003, also in Iowa, an assistant manager at an Applebee's received a collect call, I repeat, a collect call from a caller playing a role of an Applebee's regional manager. The assistant manager went on to perform a 90-minute strip search on an employee. Why would your regional manager call you collect and ask you to strip search an employee? That same year, a person pretending to be an investigator called the Taco Bell in Juneau, Alaska and somehow convinced the manager to strip search a 14-year-old customer. That employee proceeded to obey every demand. The poor employee stood there while the manager performed vulgar acts at the caller's command. Let's see, it's now 2004, and in the timeline, the Courier-Journal out of Louisville, Kentucky reports that almost 70 of these prank calls have been made to fast food chains around the country. That's 70 of these calls. But in 2004, that's where one strip search in particular grabbed everyone's attention. And that's because it was all caught on camera. Just outside Louisville, Kentucky, in the small town of Mount Washington, the prank caller strikes again. His new victim's name is Louise. We won't use her last name because she's been humiliated enough. Louise was a high school senior working at a McDonald's, earning just $6.35 an hour. A man, who goes by the name of Officer Scott, calls the store on April 9th 
2004. He asked to speak with the manager in charge. He tells the assistant manager, Donna Jean Summers, that an employee has been accused of stealing a purse. Hmm. The caller says that the suspect was a female employee. He states her height, says that she weighs about 90 pounds, and even describes the tie she is wearing. And just like that, Louise became a suspect. The assistant manager, Donna Summers, takes Louise to the back of the office and tells her to strip naked. Exactly like the caller asked. And this is all being recorded on surveillance tape inside the back office. I'm watching it right now, but I can't hear what the caller is saying because there's no audio. But make no mistake, watching the video, it's perfectly clear what the commands are. The horrific acts that are about to take place will last for more than two and a half hours. Here's Louise talking to ABC News about her horrifying experience. I was naked. I was scared. I mean, any normal person in the situation, they wouldn't have ran out. It was a Friday night, so the restaurant was super busy. The assistant manager, Donna Summers, needs to keep the store running and doesn't have time to talk to the caller. So instead, she leaves Louise naked in the back office, barely covered with a little black apron. Donna Summers hands over the phone to another employee named Jason. Jason refuses to do anything the caller is asking him to do. Frustrated, Donna walks back in and picks up the phone. I couldn't reach Donna Summers. However, her attorney was kind enough to talk with me. My name is Wendy Wagner. I'm an attorney that practices in Louisville, Kentucky. I represented a woman named Donna Summer. She had been a manager at the McDonald's where the that incident with the young lady that was taken into the office, where all that took place. I asked Wendy the same thing you're probably asking yourself right now. What the hell was Donna Summers thinking? And the, the restaurant was really busy, so she's trying to run the restaurant. She's running in and out, running around, and she was just basically too trusting uh, somebody on the phone that said they were a police officer. This guy was really, really good at convincing people that he was a law enforcement professional and that they really needed to do what he was telling them to do. That fella had done his research and he knew the names of managers and, and just and knew descriptions of people. So it wasn't like he just picked up the phone and called. It, it, this was a, as, as it goes, this was premeditated, right? It was planned yeah. and well thought out. When Ms. Summers first approached you about this, what was your reaction? Well, I think my reaction was probably the same as most folks, which was how in the world could you have fallen for this kind of a scam, especially when this person isn't even face to face, it's over the telephone. But, you know, this this story is is very complex and when you when you know all the facts which 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 takes a long time to actually become familiar with all the facts you, you come to understand how people 
can fall for things like that. But, you know, your initial reaction is, you know, what in the world were you thinking? How could you fall for that? What, what she did was not very smart. She, you know, clearly wasn't putting a lot of thought into the actions that she was taking. But I know from my contact and experience with her in this case, she didn't do anything intentional or malicious. She just, you know, she just got sucked in. So let's get back to the manager's office. Louise is still naked, barely covered by this little tiny black apron. Donna Summers is super frustrated. She can't be in two places at once. Customers are pouring into the restaurant, but she has this little situation in the back office. Somebody needs to watch Louise and talk to this officer while we wait for police. The caller has an idea. He asks Donna if she has a husband. She says, no, I have a fiancé. He says, why don't you have your fiancé come to the restaurant and watch over Louise while police get here? Here's Donna Summer speaking to prominent social psychologist Philip Zimbardo about this incident. He says, well, why don't you have him come up and sit there? I mean, you can trust him. So, um, call Wes. Wes is Donna's pet name for her fiancé, Walter Nix. Donna asked Walter to drive over to the McDonald's to watch Louise. You can see him in the footage walking into the office, taking over the call. During all this time, I'm working. I'm running the floor, I'm getting change. And then when I would walk into the office to get the change or whatever I had to get, Wes would be sitting where he was when I left, and she was sitting where she was, and no one said anything. I have questions, so let's pause the tape. She has this caller, and he sounds very convincing, uh, but she also, like you said, has a very busy, busy restaurant. She has to keep the restaurant going, um, but the big turning point was when when uh, the caller asked her to bring in her fiancé, Walter Nix, and I feel like that was that was a big leap for somebody who was was not there to understand how how that could make sense in her mind. Like, how did Donna rationalize that to you? Donna had been telling the caller, "Look, this is becoming a difficult situation for me to handle because the restaurant is busy," and she was complaining, "What is taking so long?" Why aren't the officers here, et cetera? And the, the fellow on the phone would give her the excuses that I that I mentioned. And he finally said to her, is, is there someone who doesn't, that you don't need at the restaurant, that doesn't work at the restaurant, that you trust that could come up and help you with this situation, is what the caller suggested to her. And, and I think he even suggested, do you have a husband, a boyfriend? And that's when he suggested to her that she bring her fiance up to the McDonald's. And you know, the way you just explained it, there's some logic, right, to that? Your restaurant's busy. You can't afford to to lose your staff on this, but this is very important. Who can come in that you trust? 
you know, a fiance, a, bro a boyfriend. I mean, like there is this little logic train that he's following, which is crazy, right? It's a, it's a, it, it's madness. But when, when you're in the thick of it, it makes sense, right? Now, it's been 40 minutes since they've been talking to this fake cop. It's a small town. Don't you think police would have gotten there by now? Louise is visibly crying, and at one point in the video, Donna stops to comfort her. She knew Louise was upset, so why didn't she just stop this? What happens next is pretty disturbing. Louise is crying. She wants to leave, but she can't. She doesn't even have a car or her purse. Here's Louise talking to ABC News again. I wanted to so bad, I wanted to run. To run out of the restaurant would have been humiliating. At the time, I guess, Louise figured that being here in this room, getting tortured, was her best option. Eventually, Donna leaves Louise alone with her fiancé, Walter Nix. That's when this bad situation gets worse. The caller instructs Walter to have Louise remove her apron and bend over. Next, he makes her stand on a chair, and as if this weren't ridiculous enough, the caller then asks Walter Nix to make Louise do jumping jacks naked in the office. Now, why would a cop need an employee to do jumping jacks in the nude? Well, to shake loose anything she might be hiding, sick. The demands get even more twisted. When Louise doesn't address Walter Nix as sir, the caller tells Nix to hit her on the butt over and over again. You can see it in the video. There are visible marks on her body. Louise would beg him to stop, but Walter Nix did exactly what he was told. Then, all of a sudden, Donna, the assistant manager, would walk in, and Walter Nix would throw the apron on her and tell her to cover up. Here's Louise again. He throws the apron at me and tells me, like, shh, don't tell Donna. This happened over and over. Every time Donna walks into the room, Walter Nix tosses Louise the apron so she could cover herself up. So now he's watching over her. Donna's running the restaurant and she's coming in and out, in and out. And he's he's obeying the caller's orders, which is, you know, basically it appears from the video because we can't hear what's happening, but it appears from the video is that when Donna leaves the room, he makes, you know, the victim do all sorts of humiliating things. And then when Donna enters the room, he quickly covers her up. <clears throat> and so Donna always enters the room. She charges in, grabs something, leaves. Like, was she not aware that, that, that this girl was like suffering and at some points like being bruised by this guy? No, not until it was all over. But one time, Donna storms into the office and catches Walter Nix off guard. Louise was sitting there completely naked. When Donna wasn't looking, Walter Nix quickly tosses the apron back at Louise. There's um, that point in the video where she walks in and, and the victim is not dressed and Wes quickly, you know, throws the apron at her and, and she doesn't seem to notice, I guess, but did she not, did she not have any recollection of what happened at that moment? It, it's my understanding and my recollection that she, she never noticed anything 
inappropriate happening. She didn't notice that she didn't have the apron covering her or whatever. That the restaurant was very busy that night. That, you know, Donna was just very concerned about doing a good job, keeping her job. You know, she, she needed that job. And, um, you know, she was, when she found out what had happened, I mean, she was devastated. Donna claims that every time she walks in, Louise was covered with the apron. But you could watch the video for yourself and be the judge. It's pretty clear that Louise was naked when she walked into the room. I don't know how she missed that. Again, Donna leaves the room. Then after two and a half hours of torture, Walter Nix forces Louise to perform oral sex on him. And she complies. After Walter Nix sexually assaulted Louise, the caller asks to speak to Donna Summers again. Now the caller tells Donna that he wants to speak with another male employee. The fake cop asks the new male employee for Louise to remove her apron. The employee refuses to comply with the caller's demand. However, Donna says that this is the first time she learns that the caller wants Louise to remove her apron. She says she was shocked. That's when she says she finally wised up and hangs up the phone and calls her manager. Then, after a few minutes, the footage shows the office crawling with McDonald's managers. They looked panicked. I bet my listeners, when they hear the story, that they're going to find really difficult to understand is that the police department was just less than a mile away. But this incident took place for more than two hours. Um, how did Donna Summer not know that that this was not real? I mean, like uh, the cops could would have been there by now if this were a real call. You you have to remember that that the fellow that was on the phone that was pretending to be a police officer, he had been pulling off this same scam for, if I remember correctly, you know, over a period of like 10 years, you know, many, many times he'd gotten away with the same scam. So he was very convincing, first of all. She was one of these folks who is just very um, obedient to authority. So what ended up happening to Donna Summers and Walter Nix? Well, as soon as Donna Summers saw that surveillance tape that night, she immediately called off the wedding. Her and Walter Nix were done. Then, the next day, she was fired from McDonald's for violating corporate policies prohibiting strip searches and for letting a non-McDonald's employee into the restaurant office. In court, Donna Summers entered an Alford plea, which is pretty much a guilty plea by a defendant who claims to be innocent. She received a misdemeanor and one-year probation. She wasn't charged with any sex crime. As for Walter Nix, he wasn't so lucky. Nix pleaded guilty to three different charges sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, and unlawful imprisonment. He was sentenced to five years in jail. Here's Donna Summers again. I know how it seems to people, but you weren't on the phone with him. 
The man has convinced 70 to 100 other places the very same thing. He's very good at what he does. And there's no way that I could uh, take away from what happened to her. A lot of people, you know, look at you and go, well, you're, you know, you're a nut, you should be strung up. I've had it even said to me. But it's really hard because you weren't there. You weren't there. So that raises the question, could this happen to you? I would hope not. But let's see what science has to say about this. I don't know if you've noticed a pattern on this show. Every episode we explore different kinds of con artists. Whether it's a gambler who rips off the fortune of a millionaire's widow, a snake oil salesman selling a cure for autism, or a commanding preacher who has a chokehold on her congregation. The victims all have the same thing in common. They all obey. But why? Why is it so easy for us to obey orders when we all know it's wrong? There's one psychology experiment that gets closer to the answer. It is May 1962. An experiment is being conducted in the Elegant Interaction Laboratory at Yale University. The subjects are 40 males between the ages of 20 and 50 residing in the greater New Haven area. Stanley Milgram, a psychologist at Yale University, conducted an experiment to stress test a human's ability to defend their personal values and conscience and fight against authority. He wanted to understand why the Nazis were so particularly obedient during the Holocaust. What did he learn as a result of his experiment? Well, it turns out that people suck at standing up to authority. In this study, Stanley Milgram put out an ad in the newspaper asking male participants to take part in a Yale University study. Here's audio of the actual footage. Participants entered the lab and were briefed on the experiment. Psychologists have developed several theories to explain how people learn. One theory is that people learn things correctly whenever they get punished for making a mistake. Uh, we want to find out just what effect different people have on each other as teachers and learners, and also what effect uh, punishment will have on learning in this situation. Uh, therefore, I'm going to ask one of you to be the teacher uh, here this afternoon, and the other be the learner. Once the participants arrived at the lab, they were assigned a role. Half of them would be assigned the role of the teacher, and the other half would play the role of the learner. For example, the participants thought they were playing a word game to improve memory. If the learner remembers the word correctly, they move on to the next word. But if he gets the word wrong, the teacher would have to flip a switch and send an electric shock to the learner. With each wrong answer, the teacher would have to increase the voltage in 15 volt increments, all the way to 450 volts. Ouch. Pretty painful. Except this study was completely fake. The real study was to test these guys' tolerance for authority. So let's see how these guys do. Remember, the participants playing the teacher have no idea that the learner is really an actor. The scientists then walk over to the teacher. They're sitting next to the machine. The scientist gives the teacher a sample shock, just so that the teacher knows the type of pain that they will be inflicting. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and estimate the number of holes you receive in the sample shock. Uh, do not open your eyes until I tell you to do so, please. You close them now. The experiment is simple. If the learner gives the correct answer, he receives no shock. If he's wrong, he's toast. Now, if he gives the correct answer, you say correct and go on to the next line. The correct answer is underlined and is also indicated in the right margin. Yeah. 
if he were to indicate the wrong answer, you would say wrong. Then tell him the number of volts you're going to give him. Then give him the punishment. Then read the correct word pair once. And then go on to the next line. The experiment goes as expected. The learner gets some right, and then every now and then he gets some wrong. The shocks start at 15 volts. And now the teacher has to increase the voltage to 65 volts. I'm at 65 volts. Time. Continue, please. Go on. There's a lot of them here, you know, they love a heart condition there. You want me to go? Just continue, please. Sh sharp. Axe, needle, stick, blade. And now, he needs to increase the voltage to 180 volts. That's good. Wrong. I'm up to 180 volts. Please continue, teacher. Neil, you're gonna get a shot. 180 volts. Oh. I can't stand the pain. Let me out of here. I'm not gonna kill that man. Yeah. You hear him hollering? He's they fine. said before the shocks may be painful, but yeah, they're not dangerous. They're hollering. He can't stand it. What if something happens to him? The experiment requires that you continue, teacher. Yeah, but uh, I'm not gonna get that man sick of that. I mean, he's hollering in there. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> whether the learner likes it or not, we must go on until he's well, learned I mean, all the uh, words. Here. I'd refuse to take the responsibility of getting hurt in there. I mean, I'm not. I mean, he's under hollering. It's absolutely essential that you continue, teacher. There's too many left here, and I mean, geez, he he gets wrong here. There's too many of them left. I mean, who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for anything that happens here. Continue, please. Now, we're up to 300 volts. All right, next one, slow. Wrong. Answer is neck. 300 volts. Oh! I absolutely refuse to answer anymore. Get me out of here. You can't hold me here. Get me out. Get me out of here. Continue. The next word is green, please. Green. Grass, hat, ink, apple. If the learner doesn't answer in a reasonable time, about four or five seconds, consider the answer wrong and follow the same procedures you have been doing for wrong answers. Say wrong, tell them the number of volts, give them the punishment, read them the correct answer. Oh, man. Continue, please. Something's happened to that man there. Nice one. Gold, dollar, necklace, moon, paint. Something's happened to that man in there. You better check in on him, sir. He won't answer me or nothing. Please uh, continue. Go on, please. You accept all the responsibility? The responsibility is mine. Correct. Please go on. The teacher has to increase the voltage to the maximum amount of 450 volts. Will he do it? Great. Woman, soldier, dog, horse. Answer is woman, 450 volts. That's it. Now continue using the last switch on the board, please. The 450 switch for each wrong answer. Continue, please. I'm not getting no answer. Please continue. The next word is white. Don't you think you should look in on him, please? 
Not once we've started the experiment. But what if something's happened to man hadn't attacked or something there? The experiment requires that we continue. Go on, please. Don't, it, don't the man's health mean anything? Whether the learner likes it or not, we but must... But he might be dead in there. I mean, some people can't take the shock, sir. Please I mean, continue. I don't have to be rude, but I mean, I think you should look in on them. Whether I mean, all you got to do is look at the door. I don't get no answer, no noise. Something I think has happened to the gentleman in there, sir. We must continue. Go on, please. You're going to keep giving what? 450 volts every shot now? That's correct. Continue. The next word is white. Then the teacher put aside his better judgment and gave the learner the maximum shock even though he wasn't even responding anymore. When asked at the end of the experiment why he continued... Hi. Uh, excuse me, teacher. We'll have to discontinue the experiment. I'd like to uh, ask you a few questions, if I may. How do you feel about I feel all right, but I don't like what's happened that I follow him there. He's been hollering, and we had to keep giving him shots. I didn't like that one bit. I mean, he's, he wanted to get out, and he just kept going, kept throwing 450 volts. I didn't like that. He wouldn't even look at on that gentleman. Well, who was actually pushing the switch? I was. But he kept insisting. I told him no, but he said he got to keep going. I told him it's time we stopped when we got up to uh, 195, 210 volts. Well, why didn't you just stop? He wouldn't let me. I wanted to stop. 65% of the participants, that's two-thirds of the men playing the teacher, administered an electric shock at the maximum level of 450 volts. All participants continued to 300 volts. Does this surprise you? Would you have done the same? Would you have done any different? I will avoid getting preachy, but this happens all the time. I mean, think about work. When was the last time your boss asked you to do something you were uncomfortable with and you did it anyway? We do what we're told, whether we like it or not. Here's what Stanley Milgram has to say about all this. The results, as I observe them in the laboratory, are disturbing. They raise the possibility that human nature cannot be counted on to insulate men from brutality and inhumane treatment at the direction of malevolent authority. A substantial proportion of people do what they are told to do, irrespective of the content of the act and without limitations of conscience, so long as they perceive that the command comes from a legitimate authority. If in this study, an anonymous experimenter could successfully command adults to subdue a 50-year-old man and force on him painful electric shocks against his protests, one can only wonder what government, with its vastly greater authority and prestige, can command of its subjects. just pulled up to a KFC in North Carolina. Let's see if they've heard of the notorious prank calling hoax. I wanted to know, do these employees even know that this kind of stuff is even going on? So I walk into this KFC and I order a couple things. Oh my god, I saw the weirdest thing on the news the other day. Yeah. Have you heard about that prank caller that's calling the, the fast food restaurants, acting like the police? 
that he's like calling managers, telling them that like a customer stole the purse or an employee stole the purse and making him like go into the back room and all this. You never, you ever heard that? Oh my God, it's crazy. And it's just a prank caller and he's like, like making him do all sorts of weird stuff in the restaurant. You haven't heard of it? No. Oh my God. I happened to be speaking with the manager. She had never heard of this. Then, I go to a Wendy's in Georgia. Have you ever heard about like, those prank callers that call like Wendy's and like McDonald's and stuff and like tell uh, pretending to be cops? Have you ever heard about that? No. Yeah. No, they probably have. Oh, I ain't doing no shit there. We we country. We ain't doing nothing like that. You gotta the police come here. We 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 don't even comply with them half the time. I'm serious. We some hard country girls. We all grew up right here, except for her. Uh, police wouldn't make you do that, though. You know? They ain't gonna make us do nothing in here. We all women. We have to protect each other. That's right. Yeah. What flavor you want, darling? Oh, um, let's do uh, chocolate. Okay, chocolate and. No one I spoke to had heard of these pranks. Finally, one manager in North Carolina had heard of this prank. Have you heard about like that prank caller that calls the McDonald's and talks to the managers and pretends to be the cop? Yeah, we've, we've heard about it and we're told like if they call, call the uh, our owners. Oh, really? Good. Yeah, yeah. so we, we're, we're, luckily it hasn't happened here. It happened, I remember I was here one night. It did happen and we told our owners about it. They said, don't give them any information. Good, yeah, yeah, because they made people do some stupid things. Yeah, like yeah. they'll say like the cops are on their way or something. Oh, good. Last time on Pretend, I told you about a series of prank calls targeting fast food restaurants and other businesses that took place in a period of 12 years. A caller pretending to be a police officer instructed fast food managers to strip search female employees, forcing them to jog naked, do jumping jacks, and other humiliating acts. More than 70 of these calls in the United States, and pretty much nobody, nobody was doing anything about this. It became obvious that fast food employees like the one that I spoke with had no clue that this was happening. And the police were completely unprepared to track this guy down. 12 years, and this pervert was just out there getting away with it. Today, I'm going to tell you how this story came to an end, and about the detective who stopped at nothing until he found his suspect. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Before we start looking for the bad guy, I want to talk with one of the managers who picked up one of these calls. I wanted to know what exactly did this fake cop say that was so convincing that would make someone break company policy and disregard a person's privacy just because someone in authority told them to. 
So I tried to track down one manager at a time. And as you can imagine, not a lot of people wanted to talk about this. And I get it, it's embarrassing. But one manager did answer my call, Alan Mathis. Yeah, I am the guy that picked up the call. Yeah, I was at that work. This is Alan Mathis. He's also one of the managers who picked up the call one night at a Hardy's restaurant in Rapid City, South Dakota. I wanted to know, had he ever heard of one of these pranks before? As a manager managing this Hardy's restaurant, were you ever warned that these kind of prank calls were happening? No, not at all. So they were a bunch of them that took place before me then? Yeah, oh yeah, they were, oh yeah, there were a bunch that took place before you. Alan received the call in June of 2003. The earliest calls were reported as far back as 1992. Do you feel like if you would have been warned about these calls, that you would have been better prepared? Oh, yeah. That would have never happened. And and you paid you paid a serious price for this prank call, right? And I'm still paying. I still pay. It never goes away. But come out in the paper, I lost my job that day. I couldn't get financing on my house that I just bought. It was in the process of buying, and my pickup blew up all in that same day. Then besides that, I spent $50,000 on attorney fee and couldn't hardly get a job because of it. Everybody looked at you like you sex pervert. I also lost a girlfriend up in Deadwood because of her mother-in-law had heard about it. What did the caller make him do that was so bad? The charges against you were pretty serious, right? Well, yeah, three felonies. So like, uh, yeah, two rape charges and a kidnap. I was in jail for 40 days. I was throwing in hardcore where I got my life threatened. And then, and, you know, because I wouldn't buy them candy bars and shit or whatever, you know. I wouldn't be there. Their man, I guess, whatever. Well, I got out, I got out of there a few days later with, with my life. So let's go back to 2003, the night that Alan was working at that Hardy's restaurant in Rapid City. The phone rings. It's 7:38 at the tail end of the dinner rush. What happens when you pick up the call? Well, he picked up the call and he says, "This is the police department." You know, and we had complaints that somebody, uh, one of your employees stole money from a customer. It's like, really? How did that happen? You know, and then they, they go in, you know, you can come down, you can come down to the police department or whatever, or you can perform, you know, a search there. The police officer, quote unquote, gives you an option and, and you give that option to this employee. Right. I gave her the option and she chose to, to stay there and have me search her. Because it kind of makes sense, right? Like she doesn't want to involve cops. She just wants to get this out of the way, right? Right. And then I, and then I turn into the bad guy with the felonies. A bad guy with felonies. This phone call is going to cost him two second degree rape charges and one kidnapping charge. He could face 25 years in prison and a fine by the time he's done with this call. Alan, who was 52 at the time, takes the 19-year-old employee to the back office. Prosecutors say that Alan kept the girl locked in the office against her will. 
and they pretty much had a slam dunk case against him because it was all caught on surveillance tape. Alan Mathis orders the girl to strip naked, run in place, and do jumping jacks. At one point, the caller tells Alan to take the girl's clothes and put them in her car. What was he saying that was so convincing that made you believe that he was someone of authority? Just kept reiterating that he was, and he almost seemed like, I don't know, like he had a camera there, like he was there watching me backed off and I wasn't going to do something, but he knew it. And if you didn't do something that he wanted you to do, was he angry or was he calm? I don't, I don't think he was angry. He would just, he was express his authority again, you know, firm, firmness. I don't think he, I don't think he became angry. And you say he was really good at this, right? Oh yeah. Because if he, he would have became angry that I, I think that would have been a flag. Because police, they don't get, they're very unemotional. They're very uh, black and white. And, and so you said that this lasted for two hours. Explain to the audience, because like two hours, that, that seems unreasonable. Um, all I can say is he did just a little bit of a time. It's kind of like telling a joke, you know, and you can tell it in the short term or you can stretch it out forever. That's kind of, yeah, we could have boom, boom, boom and had it over with. But I think that then he, he had his method and he, he stretched it out as long as he could. What was, um, you know, what was the, the final straw? Because this went on for two hours. But what was the thing that he asked you to do that that you're like, whoa, this is too much? He wanted, he wanted me to check her cavity. And it's like, no, 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 no. And just like that, the trance was broken. Maybe my assistant was knocking on the door or something and finally opened the door and said, boom, you know, I'm done. Another employee enters the office, gives the woman a jacket, and gets on the phone with the caller. Then, Alan bolts right out of the restaurant. I went down to Hardy's the next day and met with law enforcement. They took me to jail. In jail, I called my lawyer. He come and talked to me. He basically told me he fucked up idiot. So your own lawyer even said you were a fucked up idiot? Oh, yeah. <laughs> basically. Wow. And then the next night it happened at Perkins. And then he came back in and told me he owed me an apology. Alan tells me that he did feel like a fucked up idiot. How could he fall for this? But like he said... The next night, it happened again. The same caller called the Perkins store right across town. And, you know, prior to this call, did you ever have any dealings with the law? No, none. And even after this call, did you have any dealings with the law? No, I have not. The, the point is that you probably could have gone your whole life without ever facing, you know, any criminal charges against you had you not picked up that phone that night. That is correct. A jury acquitted Alan Mathis of all charges. His record is clear. But it's not like none of this ever happened. It still haunts him every day. For example, 16 years later, I'm calling him asking him to relive this night. But he said, The more you get it out, maybe the more you can let it go. 
Obviously, the real victims here are the young ladies who were violated by their superior. But what do you guys think? If you were a member of the jury of Alan Mathis's trial, would you have acquitted him of the charges? Or would you have found him guilty? Send me your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook. I'm curious what you have to say. I wanted to know how law enforcement handled the managers who communicated with the prank callers. So, I called one of the detectives who worked on a related prank call case. My name is Victor Flaherty. I'm the chief of police now in West Bridgewater Police Department in Massachusetts. At the time, in 2004, I was a detective sergeant in charge of a multi-jurisdictional task force. Tell me about like w- your opinion on on the managers. Do you do you kind of see them as a perpetrator or or a victim? No, I I think the way we dealt with it here and, and with our local DA's office, I was pretty much uh, focused on the fact that they're all victims because I mean they didn't did they do this willing and with intent. They I mean they, so they didn't do this willing. They were instructed to do it. So from the person answering the phone to the strip search individual in my eyes and what I was able to, I'm uh, not convinced, but able to relate to the DA's office here is that they're all victims and we got we to gotta treat them all like that. You know, you were a detective on this case. How did you first learn about this? When we had an incident at a Wendy's um, fast food restaurant here. Westbridge is a town 25 miles south of Boston. That night, there was four identical uh, calls, one to our Wendy's here and three more to surrounding communities. It's the first time I've ever heard of this this type of uh, hoax going on. And I would imagine that the first time you heard about this, that you thought maybe this is some some kid, maybe locally, that's making these prank calls, right? That's exactly what it was. I thought it was a, a just an a incident that's happening in one place, you know, so you think it's local, you know, you think it's a local thing. And then um, talking with other detectives, they just, they called me and asked me about, you know, did you, they heard that they had one here and then there was four of them. I said, okay, that's still local. Um, but then they, we started looking in on the internet and finding that this has been going on for a long time. The incident at the Wendy's West Bridgewater restaurant was typical of the other calls. The manager was a female and the woman, the girl working was a female. And it got to the point where she, they was instructed to take all of her clothes and put them in her car. I would imagine that you've seen a lot of very wild things in your career. Um, but to have somebody as a store manager or superior to an employee um, do a strip search like that, um, that had to have been a first for you, right? Oh, no, absolutely. And, and that what I couldn't understand when I conducted the interviews is why didn't they call the local police department? Why didn't they pick up the phone? But what was even more baffling to Detective Flaherty back then was that even if these managers did call police, nothing was going to happen because nobody was doing anything about these calls. This caller was just getting away with it. I couldn't understand that there was nobody that had looked into this a little deeper, but I, I can't answer why no one was looking into this. And, and after I started the investigation, I understood why no one was looking yeah. very, very hard. Tracing this stuff back is not easy. It's very time consuming. Um, some of these departments were one or two man departments. So, I mean, I can see how difficult it is to, you know, look into these things. When we come back, we're going to find the suspect and it's going to make your head spin.
So, how does one find the prank caller back in 2004? It's not as easy as you would think. And so, what was the first thing you did? You know, back, we're talking 2004, so technology has come a long way in 15 years. Right. So, in, in 2004, we did something what you call a reverse listing. A reverse listing. Let's say I call your cell phone. At the end of the month, my number will show up on your cellular bill. Your bill should show a list of incoming and outcoming calls. So I did a reverse listing on the Wendy's restaurant. The number just kept coming back to a switch, a switching computer, spitting out this 1-800 number, and, and it didn't make any sense. So it was an AT&T switching box. So I picked up the phone and called um, AT&T. I've called the phone company to try to reschedule an installation appointment, and it took me an hour. So I can't imagine trying to call them to track down a random 1-800 number. But Detective Flattery kept trying over and over. He tried for days. And after days and days of talking to people that really didn't want anything to do with me, I happened to uh, fill out a subpoena for records on this switching box. But one day, he tried again. This time, he found the right person working at AT&T. I picked up the phone and I still remember the woman's name. It was Michelle. I got somebody that cared. Somebody that was really probably a hard, hard worker. Very, you know, professional. And I just kept asking her questions. And she says, I don't know the answer, but I'll get it to you. The woman at the phone company figured it out. The 1-800 number was coming from a calling card. And at that time, you know, that's what everybody used. And when they wanted to hide their identity, they didn't want you to know who, who's calling. You know what I mean? Organized crime, um, the low-level drug dealers, everybody was buying these calling cards. So I asked, okay, how do we identify the calling card? Each calling card has a unique activation number. In order to find the caller, Detective Flattery needs to figure out the activation number. After filling out dozens of subpoenas and waiting weeks, Michelle at the phone company was able to get a reverse listing on the calling card. So I finally was able to identify it that this is the card that actually did it. So now we have this card. And I said, okay, well, where was it purchased? And, they, and she goes, well, we can't. I don't know where it was purchased. I go, what do you mean you don't know where it was purchased? AT&T doesn't do, have, we don't track that. Without knowing where the card was purchased, he will never be able to track down the prank caller, but he's not giving up. There had to be another way. I'm looking at stuff here that since September 11th, attacked in New York, that all calling cards are tracked. Mm. She's like, what? I said, I'm reading it that they're tracked. So Michelle at the telephone company goes back and starts digging. And after a few days, she gets back to him. She goes, the outtracked. I was able to find out that they were sold in Walmart in the Florida area. But that's about as close as we got at that point. In any Florida area or just Florida in general? Florida. That's all they told me at first. That could be anywhere. Yeah. In order to track down the calling card to a particular store, he needs the card's pin. I know this is very technical, and I hope I'm not boring you, but by the end of this, you too will be able to track down a prank-calling pervert. But seriously, this is a lot of work just to find out who this guy is. 
Long story short, Detective Flattery was able to trace the calling card pin to one particular store. That pin number was scanned, several scanned in the Panama City Walmart. So then I asked, okay, well, when was it scanned through? So she sends me back the printout. I got right in front of me, and it says 3 a.m. And I'm looking at, like, 3 a.m.? That's going to be easy because who's, you know, who's these 3 a.m.? This is perfect. How many people could possibly go to Walmart at 3 a.m.? Finding this guy should be easy peasy. Actually. So I call one of the Walmarts. Now I'm going to track down some of this video. And I called the Walmart and I said, yeah, they said it went at 3 a.m. She goes, well, we're not open at 3 a.m. Like, what are you talking about? I got this receipt right in front of me. It says it's, you know, 3 a.m. She says, well, we're not open. So it's got to be something wrong. I'm like, uh-oh. It turns out that Walmart batch processes all their cards at 3 a.m. So everything's at 3 a.m. But he didn't give up. He knows the exact day the card was purchased. He just doesn't know what time. I called down to Panama City Walmart and got the security kid there. And I told told him to send me back this date. And he did. I had to find out what video they had and what lanes they had open in Walmart and just sit and watch video, the old VHS. And I don't know if you're familiar with this stuff, but it's tedious and long and... It was insane. Now I'm watching this VHS and just watching and watching and watching. And then I see an individual that I saw on the other tape. No, it's Panama City. I mean, I guess the guy could come in again, you know. But it was the first time I saw the same person come through the door at the same amount of time this card was being purchased on both tapes. So then that's how I first saw the guy. You see a picture of a guy, but like now, how do you attach a name to a guy, you know, that that doesn't, you know, that you have no idea who he is? Well, then the video they sent back to me also has registers. So, but I didn't know which one he went through. So then I looked at the the time, exact time it was, and I brought the VCR and I see what appears to be that guy going into like lane 13, the same guy went through the line, and I saw him that you could see like a calling card in a bottle. And then I guess eventually uh, through register records, you were able to track down his name. She paid cash, so of course, that's another thing. He's like, oh, great, credit card, done. It's a done deal. So he paid cash. The only reason why I could really tell it was the same individual, because the grainy pictures are not real great pictures, is that he had a pair of pants on that looked law enforcement with the blue stripe down the side. And to me, it looked like he had law enforcement pants on, like he was a cop somewhere. Wait a minute. Law enforcement? You're telling me that the guy who's been making these calls, pretending to be a cop, was actually a cop? I didn't see that coming. So... I saw him coming in. I saw him in line with that, but he had a pullover on, so I couldn't tell, but I saw the pants. So I thought it might be law enforcement. Detective Victor Flaherty hops on a plane. I said, you know what? I got to go to Panama City. I just got to go down myself. The first day we pull, you know, fly in and about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, we go right to the PD down there. And I got like eight detectives standing around me. I open up my laptop and I open up the picture we cleaned up and they go, Corrections pants. Like, they're, they're, you know, they're jailed. The Panama City detectives recognized it right away. Those were not cop pants. Those were correction officer pants. 
the guy we're looking for must work at one of the jails. This is some great police work. I got to tell you, man, this is like a lot more intense than I even imagined, you know, because like a lot of people would have probably given up already, right? You go to the first jail, walk in, and we show it to the superintendent, uh, you know, uh, of the jail. And I open up the laptop and he looks at it and he goes, I go, are those correction pants? He goes, yep. I go, do you know this individual? Yep. And he named him. Wow. So they bring the suspect in. His name is David Stewart. Bang. He was, it was him. Did you make the arrest right then and there? What are we going to charge him with? I mean, what, what is this? What's the crime? I mean, it was craziness. So I introduced myself and I said to him, why would a sergeant from Massachusetts be coming down here to talk to you? First question, I still remember, plain as yesterday. And he said, oh, I have no idea or something to that effect. And um, I asked him if he ever owned a calling card. And at that point, he started to shake and he was sweating, just started to sweat. And he had ties. He unclipped his ties. I still, I still remember this to this day. And he asked me, was anybody hurt? And he then, I said, no, no one was physically hurt, mentally and what have you. I'm sure there's, you know, issues going forward. And he goes, he goes, amen, it's over. So I'm thinking, this is great. He's going to admit to it. And after that, he lawyered up. Didn't say a word. They didn't make an arrest. Massachusetts didn't know what to charge him with. Panama City couldn't arrest him because they didn't even know what crime he committed, if any. What we decided to do, we went back to the Panama City uh, department and we wrote search warrants for his house. David Stewart lived in a mobile home on a dirt road 20 miles north of Panama City. When we did the search warrant later on um, at his house, there was a calling card found um, that was used in about, I don't know, seven or eight different restaurants um, for, that were traced back for these calls. And police found more than just the calling cards. But what we found too, yeah. But what we found also is, is that he put in numerous applications for police jobs and he had gone to some type of a college to get the I guess down in Florida, you actually go to school prior to being high ed. So you go there and go to college and, you know, take uh, some type of a law enforcement academy. And he had taken it. And I think I can't I won't be 100 percent sure, but I think he was hired like part time, some small department down there at one point and They let him go or what have you. So he always wanted to be a cop. David Stewart had been working at the prison for 11 months at this point. But after Detective Flaherty came to visit, he was fired. And like I mentioned earlier, he didn't get arrested because nobody knew what to charge him with. But remember the case with Donna Summers and Louise in Part 1? The Mount Washington authorities in Kentucky drove down to Panama City, Florida and arrested David Stewart on June 30, 2004. The only department that took him was that who I called, and I, I still remember the, the, the officer's name, Buddy Stump. I thought that was the funniest name. He was in Kentucky, in a, a small county in Kentucky. Kentucky said, nope, we'll come get him. So he was arrested, 
and Kentucky came down and picked them up, and that started the Kentucky uh, trials. David Stewart pleaded not guilty to solicitation to commit sodomy and impersonating a police officer, as well as other misdemeanor crimes like soliciting sex abuse and unlawful imprisonment. So, before I tell you how this ends, let's review the facts as we know it. More than 100 calls in a period of 12 years that have led to dozens of criminal charges for managers who picked up the phone and followed the caller's orders. Not to mention the permanent scars of sexual abuse and the humiliation of the poor employees who endured hours of abuse against their will. And detectives were able to track down the calling cards to a Walmart in Florida. They tracked it down to a suspect who happened to live in a mobile home with the same cards used in the prank calls. Okay, now let's hear what the jury has to say about this. The jury found David Stewart not guilty. After hours of deliberation, they said that they just didn't have enough evidence. There were no witnesses to identify Stewart as being on the payphone where the calls originated. And there just wasn't any voice recordings to compare it to Stewart's voice. How in the world we find a calling card in your home that was used in multiple other hoaxes? So that's the guy. I mean, it's ridiculous. But could somebody have lived there with him and just doing it? He may have been found not guilty, but all I can say is that after his arrest, all the calls stopped. And as far as I know, they've never happened again. It wouldn't be fair to end the story here. I needed to reach out to David Stewart to get his take on all this. Maybe he wasn't the prank caller. Maybe there was a logical explanation for all this. So I looked him up and decided to give him a call. My search resulted in a string of numbers. Number you have dialed is not a working number. Please check the number. Most of them were disconnected. But the last one, someone picked up the phone. Hi, I'm trying to reach uh, David Stewart. Who is this? Is this David? Oh, my name's No. Huh? My name's Javier. Do you know how to? Uh, do you know how I can reach David? What's your name? It's Javier. J A V I E R. V is in Victor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know David. Yeah. Um, I was wondering. Yeah, if all right. You wanted to uh, reach him. Um, do you know where I could find him? I know where I can find him. What's this in regards to? Oh no, I just wanted to ask him a couple questions. Um, I'm working on a on a project and uh, wanted to see if he could uh, help me out with it and um, just kind of chat with him about a couple things. But I wanted to see if I could talk with him first. Yeah, well, he's not here, but I could give him your number. Well, excellent. Yeah, you could have him reach me. That that would be great. Um, okay. What are you working on? What am I working on? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm uh I'm working on a on a story for um this this podcast that I'm working on and I thought that um maybe I 
that David would want to talk to me about it? Well, uh, I can pass on the information. Uh, you know, he's he calls you that's up to him, but I'll pass on the information. Are you, are you sure? Are you sure I'm not talking to David now? Am I sure? Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, I think I'm sure. Yeah, why? Oh, no, I was just wondering, because, you know, sometimes when random people call, I, I sometimes do that, too, where I'm like, yeah, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll pass on the message. But if, if it's you, I, I just want to make sure, you know, I can tell you more about the project. I just don't want to tell, uh, you know, somebody that, you know, I, I just want to make sure I'm talking with David before I tell more about the project. No, I'm not David. Now, I don't know if the man I was speaking to was David or not, but he certainly knew David. But I never heard back, and I waited a week, and I decided to follow up. But this time, someone else picked up the phone. Hello? Hello? Hi, who, who am I speaking with? Who is this? Hi, who, who am I speaking with? I'm uh, looking for David. There's no David? No, there is no David here. Okay. Um, so, who, who am I speaking with? Who are you? My name's Javier, and I'm uh, doing a story on, on David Stewart, and I just wanted to get his opinion on, on a story that that he was mentioned in. I just wanted to get his point of view to see how that... Well, I'm sorry. There, there is no David here. You're calling the wrong number. I don't know no David. No one. Listen, I haven't got time for you. There's no funny here named David. I'd appreciate that you know that. I'm sure you're just as surprised as I was, but after listening to this call over and over again, I now realize that this person was communicating to me through a voice box due to a tracheostomy or something. But she didn't know a David or had any idea who I was talking about. She hung up on me and I called back. I was not expecting that. So it was the same number I called the previous week. Very bizarre. I guess we'll just leave it at that. All right, that was it. I told you that ending was creepy. Don't forget to watch Don't Pick Up the Phone on Netflix. You could stream all three episodes on December 14th. Tell a friend and let me know what you think. Talk to you soon. Creative Power.